For decades, the church in America has been experiencing a crisis. Many pastors, many preachers have proclaimed a God of love, but not a God of justice. They have softened man's sinfulness, teaching that we're somehow born with a spark of goodness. They've also preached a watered-down gospel that lacks life-changing repentance. And as a result, today churches are filled with those who believe in God, but they do not believe God. Many church members live just like people in the world. Did you know statistically there's virtually no moral difference between those who attend church and those who do not? Yet God's word tells us if any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Many preachers say, just ask Jesus into your heart. It will only take a minute. But Jesus said, he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And who has, who, he who has lost his life for my sake will find it from Matthew chapter 10. In order to reach the world, we have compromised the message, meaning that many in our congregations are Christianized, but not converted. Because many churches are filled with the unconverted, pastors have resorted to antinomianism, not expecting believers to behave any different than those in the world. Some have actually resorted to legalism, attempting to make unbelievers in their churches live like Christians. Yet antinomianism nor legalism is the answer. The answer is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. A biblical gospel is the answer. When I attended university, a debate was initiated by Dr. John MacArthur when he wrote the book, The Gospel According to Jesus. Then he followed that book up five years later basically dealing with the same subject in a book called The Gospel According to the Apostles. Do you know what that debate was primarily about? It was about the nature of salvation, and the chief area of debate was concerning repentance. Is repentance necessary for salvation? In response to MacArthur's books, there were two schools of thought that developed. One was led by Dr. Charles Ryrie, in which he wrote the book, Balancing the Christian Life. And in that book, he basically redefines repentance to make it synonymous with faith. The other uh, group of thought was led by Zane Hodges, in which he wrote the book, Absolutely Free. And in that book, he relates repentance to a post-salvation commitment. So is Repentance synonymous for faith, for believing? Or is repentance somehow some secondary commitment after salvation? Actually, the Greek word uh, metanoio means a change of mind. And as we study this out in both the Old Testament and the New, we see that repentance is a change of mind that always results in a change of direction. Sometimes the command for salvation in the New Testament is repent. Sometimes it's believe. Sometimes it's both. 
John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and he said this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew chapter three. Peter on the day of Pentecost preached, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, Acts two. Later, Paul preached to those in Athens to repent in response to the risen Christ, Acts 17. Yet on some occasions, we find the command to be believe. When the Philippian jailer asked Paul what he must do to be saved, the apostle told him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So is there or are there two different gospel messages in the New Testament? Is repentance necessary for salvation? Is repentance simply another word for faith? Does preaching repentance add works to salvation? Let's first consider the relationship between faith and repentance. Dr. John MacArthur writes this, what does the Bible teach about the relationship between salvation and repentance? First, it teaches that repentance is essential to salvation. One cannot truly believe unless he repents, and one cannot truly repent unless he believes. Repentance and faith, and I like this, repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin, but they are not synonymous terms. There's a telling passage in Acts chapter 17, we've already referred to it, where Paul preaching to those in Athens said this, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked or winked at, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. That's verse 30. But when you look down to verse 34, Paul refers to those that repented as those who believed. So to some degree, he's using these concepts as referring to the same thing. Scottish theologian, Dr. Sinclair Ferguson writes, and and I find this the most helpful statement that I've ever read in defining the relationship between repentance and faith. He writes this, any confusion is surely resolved by the fact that when Jesus preached the gospel of God in Galilee, he urged his hearers, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel from Mark chapter 1, 14 and 15. Here, repentance and faith belong together, he writes. They denote two aspects in conversion that are equally essential to it. Thus, either term implies the presence of the other because each reality repentance and faith is the uh, sine qua non or the essential element of the other. In grammatical terms, he writes, then the words repent and believe both function as a synecdoche. That's the figure of speech in which part is used for the whole. Thus, repentance implies faith and faith implies repentance. One cannot exist without the other, end of quote. He talks about a synecdoche. That's a literal, a literary device that we use in English. It's a figure of speech in which part is used for the whole. Let me give you a couple of examples. When we sent soldiers to Afghanistan, we sent 
boots on the ground. We refer to it as boots on the ground. That's a synecdoche. We see a person that has a nice vehicle and we say, man, nice wheels. We're using part to refer to the whole. A lot of times we refer to these spectacles as glasses, but glasses are only part of the spectacle. That's a synecdoche. And both repentance and faith in the New Testament in the Greek text are synecdoches. Some have said that repentance is only a part of the gospel of the kingdom message and don't apply to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yet notice these two key passages of scripture. Jesus, just after the resurrection, said to the men on the road of Emmaus in Luke 24, Then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for Christ to suffer, to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission or forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. At the end or near the end of the Apostle Paul's life, when he stood before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, Paul says this, Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, that's faith, and do works befitting repentance. Remember, repentance is a change of mind, a change of heart, that always results in a change of direction. When you study the word word repentance out in the New Testament, that's what you see. It results in a change. It's a change of mind that so affects us because it's a work of God. John the Baptist, one of the most uh, important figures of the New Testament apart from Christ, was a forerunner of Jesus Christ. Old Testament scriptures prophesied about John's coming in Isaiah 40 and then the book of Malachi. But we find an amazing passage of scripture in Luke chapter 3, in which Luke quotes from Isaiah 40. Listen to the words of Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time today. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, When Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Euterea, and Tachonitis, and Lysenius was tetrarch of Abilene, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness, And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, and here he quotes from chapter 40, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight, every ravine will be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low 
the crooked will become straight, the rough road smooth, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. In verses 1 and 2, Luke lays the historical setting. In verse 3, he describes his ministry. And then in verse 4 through 6, he quotes from the book of Isaiah. By the way, Isaiah 40 is a transitional chapter in the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah turns from the promise of coming judgment to the promise of God's coming salvation to be brought about by the suffering servant. After 39 chapters of pronouncing judgment on Judah, in verse 1 of chapter 40, listen to his words. What a transition. Comfort, oh, comfort, my people, says the Lord. Comfort? Well, the fact of the matter is, while Judah is promised judgment, God's ultimate purpose for Judah, for Israel, is salvation. And that's where Isaiah turns in chapter 40. He turns from that coming judgment that they still were going to experience to the ultimate promise of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. So in Isaiah 40, Isaiah uses analogy to describe the purpose and meaning of John's ministry, the analogy of preparing the way for a king, for the Lord. When a king took over a kingdom or even a new territory, that king would, keep, would tour the kingdom or that new territory. But before that happened, he would send a forerunner to the towns and the cities. That forerunner would say, the king is coming. Make ready for the king. Prepare the way for the king. And so cities and towns, various areas would make preparation. They would prepare the way. And in doing so, they would build new roads or repair their existing roads to make the king's entrance into that town or city easy, to make it smooth. Luke quotes from Isaiah. Listen to verse 4 again. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness refers to John the Baptist, the son of Zacharias. And Luke makes that perfectly clear when you read the whole context there. The wilderness pictures man's heart. Because apart from the king, apart from the Lord in our lives, our hearts are nothing but a wilderness, thirsty, hungry for the truth of God. He also says, make ready the way of the Lord. Now, Luke, writing in Greek, refers to the Lord as kurios. It's the supreme master. But when you look at Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in the Hebrew text, refers to the Lord, the one that John the Baptist would prepare the way for, as Yahweh or Yahweh. The king that was coming is Yahweh. 
the Messiah, the eternal self-existing independent one. He is the I am of the Old Testament. So never let anybody tell you that Jesus Christ was not God in human flesh. He was Yahweh according to Isaiah and according to Luke chapter 3. John the Baptist came to prepare the way for the Messiah, and he did so by preaching repentance. Why? Again, I refer to Dr. MacArthur. He answers that question. Because if you're going to come to the Messiah, if you're going to embrace the Messiah, have the Messiah embrace you. If you're going to receive the kingdom, you're going to have to have forgiveness of sin. And if you want forgiveness of sins, you have to repent. The Messiah came not to deliver Israel from Rome, from the tyranny of the Gentiles. He was coming to deliver man from sin. The Jews would never trust the Messiah to save them from their sins if they did not come to grips with their own sinfulness, if they did not admit their real need for the Messiah, the King. How could Jesus be their Messiah if they did not recognize their sin problem? How could he be their Messiah if they loved their sin more than him? How could he be their Messiah if they did not want to be saved from their sin? Salvation is salvation from sin. Remember Joseph when he found out that Mary was with child, the one that he was betrothed or engaged to, and he's contemplating what he must do. Matthew writes this about Joseph. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Now listen to verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus originates from the Hebrew, Yahshua, or Yahshua, as some say. Yah is short for Yahweh. Yah saves. Yahshua. You shall call his name Yahshua. God saves. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. That's what Christ came to do. He came to save us from our sins, and we all have a sin problem. How can a person trust in the Messiah to save them if they do not wish to be saved from the very cancer he came to save them from? So John the Baptist came to prepare the way. He came preaching repentance, calling for a change of heart and mind that results in a change of direction. This is supernatural. It's not a work of man. It's not based just on man's decision. This is an act of God. John came also preaching the baptism of repentance. What is the baptism of repentance? What's this all about? The only baptism the Jews knew, apart from ceremonial cleansings, was the baptism of a Gentile becoming a part of Israel. If you wanted to become a part of Judaism, of Israel, you had to be immersed in water, illustrating that you were an unclean person outside the covenant of promise, and you had to be cleansed to be accepted into Israel. 
with that in mind, can you imagine what it meant for John to call the Jews, the people that were descendants of Abraham, many of them thinking that they were okay, that they were the children of Abraham or children of God because they were children of Abraham. Can you imagine what it would have been like for them to tell them that they need to be baptized, the baptism of repentance? These people were proud, many of them religious. They referred to the Gentiles as dogs. That's how they saw themselves. So being baptized was an admission that they themselves, even being descendants of Abraham, were alienated from God. They were just like the Gentiles. They had no relationship with God, and they needed God's forgiveness. The baptism of repentance. John the Baptist came preaching repentance. He was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, and he came to prepare the way for the Lord. Look at verse 4 once again. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Again, Luke is quoting from Isaiah quoting Isaiah's analogy that explains exactly what repentance involves. The wilderness is the heart. It's man's sinful heart, the heart that every man, woman, boy, and girl is born with. And this path is the path of repentance. This is an amazing analogy of what repentance is like. So basically, John is defining repentance for his hearers. First, he says, every ravine will be filled. This is analogous to the low, dark things of the heart that have to be dealt with. Repentance involves an honest dealing with the depths of wickedness in our hearts. We need to look deep, deep down into the sinful muck of our hearts and allow the truth of God's light to shine into those areas and reveal our sin, that he might change us, that he might deal with those sins. We have to admit those dark things. The other John, not John the Baptist, but John, in John chapter 1, verse 9, wrote, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He came as a forerunner. He came to bear witness of the true light that lights every man that comes into the world. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. John wrote in chapter 3, 19 and 20, and this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Repentance is a willingness to allow those deep, dark things to be exposed to the light of God, the light of Jesus Christ, we must stop hiding those deep, sinful, hidden things. We are to confess our sins to him. If any man says that he has no sin, 
According to 1 John, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. We need to admit and allow our sins to be exposed that God might deal with them, that the light of Christ might shine on them. Luke continues quoting Isaiah, every mountain and hill will be brought low. The religious Jews were not only good at hiding their dark things, they were self-righteous. They were proud. They were haughty. These were people that were self-righteous. They had self-righteous attitudes. They wanted to be seen as the religious people, as those who had a relationship with God, as those that were better than everybody else. But we must knock down that which is proud, the haughty, the self-righteous. Those mountains have to be brought low. We're making a way. We're building a road for the Lord. In Romans chapter 2, verse 3, Paul says to those self-righteous Jews, and do you think this, old man, you who judge those practicing such things and do the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? See, they were proud, but yet they hid their sins. They had those ravines. They had those dark things. Remember the parable Jesus told in Luke chapter 18? Verse 9 says this, Also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. And he goes on to tell this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector. This is what the Pharisee prayed. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. But the Bible says there was a tax collector, tax collector that stood at a distance, and he would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his hand against his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said this about these two men in this parable. I tell you, referring to the second one, the tax collector, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. See, we don't we, we not only have to deal with those deep things, we have to deal with the pride, the self-righteousness in our lives, admitting our need for Christ, our need for the Lord. He also continues, the crooked will become straight. This is the word scolios. It refers to crooked things that need to be straightened out. It refers to the devious, deceitful, the lying, the perverse, deceptions in our own life. And it's so easy in our sins to deceive ourselves, to think that because we are maybe better in our eyes than somebody else, that we're okay before God. But that's deception. Satan is a liar. He was a liar from the beginning. And those who are not in Christ are following him. They are being deceived by their own sin and their own self-righteousness. And then finally he says, and the rough roads smooth. 
I think this likely refers to the little sins, the things that we write off as insignificant. So he's not only saying to straighten out the road, to bring up the ravine, to bring down the mountains, to make a smooth entrance, but even the little stones that's left on the road have to be removed. Maybe it refers to everything that's left over. Maybe it refers to self-love, the love of money, the love of the world, the lust of the flesh, indifference, apathy, unbelief, all the other junk that's in our hearts. We cannot even allow one stone to be left behind when clearing the path for the Messiah. We must deal with every sin, every dark, secret sin that we buried where nobody can see them. Every lofty element of pride, every crooked, deceitful sin, and every little sin that gets in the way of the Lord's entry into our lives. We must prepare the way for the Lord. We must allow God to cleanse our hearts. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, and this is the message that we've heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, continually cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We need to allow the light of Jesus Christ to shine on our sin, to reveal our sins to us that we might with God's power repent, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. John is calling people to repentance. That's what he was prophesied to do. He is the forerunner. He's the one that went out before the king to prepare the way for the Lord. Repentance is a change of mind, and it always, by God's power, by the Spirit of God, results in a change of direction. John is not telling us that these are things that we must accomplish. This is not about cleaning up our own lives. Repentance is a work of God. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25, the Bible tells us that God grants repentance. This is not a work of man. This is a gift from God. John came to prepare the way for the Messiah. The Messiah was coming to bring salvation, salvation from sin. The call to salvation was a call of repentance. We could say a repentant faith. The Messiah is the suffering servant of Isaiah. He is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. And John came to prepare a way for him. Then finally in verse 6, referring back to Isaiah once again, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. In the Hebrew, it says, and all flesh will see it all together. But here, Luke quotes from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew text. God, the very author of Scripture, in his sovereignty gave us greater understanding of what's meant by quoting 
from the Septuagint. By quoting Isaiah's prophet as was revealed in a Greek translation, giving us more understanding. And he's telling us every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, not just the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which see the salvation of the Lord, but every people group. This is the fulfillment of God's promise in Abraham that all the families of the earth would be blessed, Genesis 12, 3. The Messiah has come. He came 2,000 years ago. The command is the same. Repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel itself demands repentance. It demands obedience. Just as Jesus died for our sins, the gospel calls us to die to our sins. Just as Jesus was buried, we're to bury our sinful past. We could say six feet under and leave it there. And just as Christ was resurrected from the dead on the third day, we're to rise up by the power of God to live righteous lives. What prevents us from obeying the gospel? What prevents the king from entering our hearts? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. Have we truly believed? Have we come in repentant faith, believing on him? Which area are we affected by? We seek to reign our own lives. The fact of the matter is, by nature, we don't want a king. We want to reign. We want to rule. We want to make our own decisions. Takes us right back to Genesis chapter 3, doesn't it? Where Adam and Eve sin, seeking the knowledge of good and evil, seeking to know for themselves so that they might make their own choices. We seek to serve ourselves because we love our sins. We love the deep secret things that nobody knows about except God. And we seek to hide those things from God, but we cannot. We love our prideful attitudes, our self-righteousness. We don't want to admit that we have a need for him. We want to think that we're good enough and that God will accept me for who I am. We love the crooked things and we deceive ourselves and we love every little sin. We do what we want to do if Christ is not the Lord of our lives. But in spite of our sinfulness, in spite of our iniquity, our wickedness, God and his grace calls us to repentance, to have a change of mind about our sins and about our self-righteousness, to trust in Christ, to turn us away from every sin to a life of faith. When a man or a woman comes to grip with their own sinfulness, there's usually one of four responses. Either they will not turn to Christ and turn away from their sins, or they reject grace because they see themselves as so bad and so wicked that they have a hard time believing that God could ever forgive them. Yet, Jesus said that he came to save sinners. Paul said, I'm the chief among sinners. God saved him. 
A third possibility, they attempt to deal with their own sin through goods, good works or religious acts. These were the people in the New Testament that the Lord Jesus condemned harshly. He called them snakes, vipers. He said that they were like whited tombs or whited sepulchers because outwardly they appeared beautiful or righteous. But Jesus said, In, inwardly, you are filled with dead men's bones. You look good on the outside. Everybody thinks that you're the religious people of the day, but in your hearts, you're nothing but wickedness. That's what religion does. We don't need religion. We don't need to lift ourselves up by our bootstraps. We don't need good works for salvation. We need Christ. And when we have Christ, it results in good works. But good works do not save. And then the fourth and final response is this, that in repentance, they turn to Christ, believing that the good news that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Mark chapter 1, verse 15 says, John the Baptist's message was this, repent and believe the gospel. What about you? God has called us to repentance. God has called us to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. These, although they're not synonyms, there's two sides of the same coin. We cannot turn to Christ without turning away from sin. It's a hundred an 80 degree turn. And it's by the power of God found only in the gospel of Jesus Christ. What about you? And what about me? Have we truly come to repentance and trusted totally in the work of Christ? Trusted in his death, burial, and resurrection that we might be saved. Repentance is a part of salvation. And it's also something that continues in the believer's life. Paul said, I die daily, dying to self, dying to sin, dying to his own desires to serve God. If you've never come to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, you do not know him. I challenge you, don't put this off. Right now, today, trust in him. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, thank you, God, for the amazing gospel of Jesus Christ. God, thank you that you came to save sinners like the Apostle Paul and like me by your grace. God, thank you for the work of repentance in our lives. Thank you that you've called us to salvation. And every one of us are responsible for that call. Lord, we've heard your call today. May we not walk away from it. May we not forget about it. May we not allow Satan to come and snatch those seeds away but may, may, may we today believe in your son who died on Calvary's cross, 
was buried and rose again the third day, according to the Scripture, fulfilling every promise, every prophecy about him in the Old Testament. I pray today, God, that our hearts would continue to be changed, that we might walk in faith, and we might serve you with all our hearts. Thank you for your word, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.